0: Hello there, friend. Nice to have you here again. My apologies for an unplanned, several-week-long hiatus in the Tully show. Uh, I don't know how to explain it. Life, man. Life. Kids, man. Kids. Anyway, I can promise you this will be the first of at least uh, several new Tully shows that will going up in the weeks to come. And let me remind you, anytime there is not a Tully show, you can always go to my Patreon. At this point, I must be up to—I must be knocking on the door of, like, 100 patreon exclusive podcasts at patreon.com slash mike tully so the next time i skip a week or you just need even more of me in your life make sure you check it out patreon.com slash mike tully okay you ready to start this show uh, your host of the evening is a really funny dude um I forgot his last name, but I've seen him before, and he's really funny. Uh, give it up for Mike oh, hey. 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 Coming to you live, on tape, from, once again, my nine-year-old son's bedroom in rapidly gentrifying Culver City-adjacent California, boasting a partially obstructed view of the world-famous Hollywood sign. This is The Tully Show, I am your host, Mike Tully, joining me today From Florida, a scientist and oceanographer specializing in bioluminescence, also author of a just-released book entitled Below the Edge of Darkness, a memoir of exploring light and life in the deep sea. Hello and welcome, Dr. Edie Witter.
1: Hi, Mike. It's good to be here.
0: Thank you so much for for joining me. When I saw that your book was scheduled to come out, I, I, I bookmarked the date, and I wanted to make sure that I that I talked to you about it when it came out. First of all, congratulations. I've co-authored a couple of books. I know how much work goes into, I mean, I can only imagine how much work went into living the life that you recount in, in um, writing a memoir. But just the mundane stuff of putting a book out, boy, it must be a nice feeling that it's actually a tangible thing that people can get their hands on nowadays. So congratulations, first of all. It exists, it's here, you did it
1: it feels great to know it really exists in the world now
0: something i like to do with this show is you know when it comes to understanding a situation there's no substitute for first-hand experience but there's lots of stuff out there in the world that most of us are never going to get to experience i have spoken to people who have you know been in afghanistan with the military i've spoken to people who have been on the israeli-palestinian border sort of likewise Most of us will know the experience in our lifetime of maybe peering off a boat or a pier down into the ocean. And we see as far as the sunlight will allow us to see. And then there's that sort of dark and foreboding depth underneath that, that most of us will never actually see with our own eyes experience with our own bodies. You've made a career out of, among other things, going down deep into those depths, often in single person crafts to study what's down there in a sense Where like the light bit that we have all experienced ends is where your life's work has begun. Is that about right?
1: Yeah, and uh, it happens also to be the largest ecosystem on the planet, which is something that we very easily lose sight of. We really don't know what it means to live on an ocean planet when so few of us have had the opportunity to explore it.
0: Right. You make the observation, and I guess I've heard it before, that there's more... That we have not explored in the depths and expanse of the ocean than there is area that we have explored on both land and ocean put together in terms of this earth. Is that about right? What Give us some sense of the proportion and ratio of what we have and have not seen.
1: Uh, you said it right. Um, and, you know, often people say, well, we've only explored 5% of the ocean. That number is not right. Um, and some people would tell you it's too big and some people would tell you it's too small um it it's as far as i'm concerned way too big when they talk about exploring the ocean they're talking about maps that have been made remotely some from satellite some from a surface ship with side scan sonar um with advanced side scan sonar we're getting close to maybe having mapped 30 percent of the ocean bottom but that's not that's not exploring the ocean
0: No, yeah, that's a map right
1: And if you talk about just exploring the bottom of the ocean, you're talking about only 0.05%. And that's just the bottom. That doesn't include all of the water above it. So we're talking about just a staggering volume that has life that we don't know anything about and yet is critical to our survival on the planet.
0: It's sort of a funny time to be talking to you. Um, I'm sure the you know this hasn't been lost on you. A lot of the dialogue in the world, particularly in regard to science, in the last couple of weeks and months, has been in regard to space travel, space tourism, billionaires racing each other to get up into space. I know this is an impossible question to answer, but I'm going to ask it anyway. I just want to get some sense of how wonderful and amazing the depths of the ocean really are. If I gave you the option of gifting a close friend of yours either a trip. Up with Jeff Bezos or Rich Brand- Richard Branson the next time they went up, or a trip down with you to the real depths of the ocean. Once they were done with that trip, which one do you predict a friend would be more thankful for having been gifted?
1: Oh, unquestionably the ocean. I, I, I'm I to me this this whole race for space thing doesn't make sense when you think it through. Be, be, well. Partly, I have to admit, I'm a biologist, so I'm biased. I mean, I want to see living things. Yeah. And the ocean is filled with incredible living things, a lot of which light up, which is pretty magical. Um, and, yeah, I mean, I, I get the, the thrill of going up into space and, and seeing the planet from space. But it's really not doing us much good right now, considering what we're facing. And I I think we really need to be focusing on life on our planet and what it takes to sustain it.
0: Right. And we're going to get to the the bioluminescence, of course, that's essentially the subject of the book. And we're going to get to the issues of of climate and, and climate change. But I'm trying to get some sense of how much you believe in your informed opinion is still out there that we haven't seen. Now I had to actually literally go back and remind myself kingdom phylum, class order, family, genus, species. When you say there's so much out there that we haven't seen in your informed opinion, can you speculate just how crazy are we talking about? Is there like a whole other whale or giant squid level thing that we don't even know about? Are we talking about species, subspecies? Are we talking about full genuses out there that we don't know about?
1: Oh, easily genuses and, and, uh, So just as an example, um, I developed a camera system called the eye and the Sea, which I had a really hard time funding because the funding agencies kept asking me, what will you discover? And I kept saying, that's the point. I think we've been scaring everything away. This is an unobtrusive camera system. I want to see what is down there that we're not when we're not scaring it away, but in fact, attracting it with a lure that imitates bioluminescence. And the very first time I turned on that lure, Eighty-six seconds after I turned it on, we recorded a squid over six feet long that was so completely new to science it couldn't be placed in any known family.
0: Family. Oh, okay. All right. All right. right. I got you. I'm with you.
1: Okay. So um, that's just uh, 86 seconds. (laughs) How much else is there out there that we've been scaring away? The only reason we know about giant squid is they happen to float when they die. They have ammonia in their tissues, and it causes them to float. Most things don't. So what about all the stuff that doesn't float and that swims fast enough to get away from our bright lights and noisy thrusters? There could be amazing things down there that we haven't discovered yet.
0: Right. What is it that you say? It's things that are slow, stupid. The
1: slow, the stupid, and the greedy are what what most of our sampling um, does for us. You know, drag a net behind a ship. And if if the animal cannot swim it, or if they're so greedy they try to grab something out of the net and get caught, um, but you know there's lots of things that can outswim a net and see it coming and be long gone. So how are we going to find out about them unless we start exploring more sensibly um, in unobtrusive ways?
0: The book opens with a story of uh, you know one of the mere worst case scenarios for being in a single person submersible. Now, I'm assuming there's a level of claustrophobia under the best of circumstances and the potential for disaster under the worst. It takes a level of bravery to commit to doing what you've done not once, but hundreds of times over your career. Now, I gather from going through the book that your sense of excitement and wonder at what you're going to experience down there has always trumped other concerns and considerations. But do you ever get over that sense of trepidation, claustrophobia, et cetera, when you are in a single person submersible? And it sounds like, I want to say science fiction. It's like, it is still science fiction. I mean, I'm thinking of that show sea lab. Literally what you do reminds me of that old Hanna-Barbera cartoon that they remade on adult swim sea lab. Do you, do you ever get used to the feeling that this is a crazy thing I'm doing?
1: Oh, absolutely. I, I, I feel completely comfortable in submersibles and, I really only had one claustrophobic attack in in all my years of diving, Um, so you get used to it very quickly.
0: Your first trip down, and this is decades ago, I know, but was, quote unquote, only 800 feet underwater. I mean, 800 feet, if everybody wants to think about that for a second, and that's that's nothing compared to where you've been since then. What is the farthest you have been down?
1: Actually, I've only been as deep as uh, a little over 3,000 feet. That's a Um, lot. Because I'm so interested in bioluminescence, and and most of it occurs between 200 feet and 3,000 feet, that's where I hang out the most.
0: So the bioluminescence, and we're segueing into that now, that begins at a certain level, obviously, where the ocean gets very dark, but there's a whole other level beneath that where bioluminescence no longer serves animals, even though the water is presumably even darker?
1: Oh, no. There's still bioluminescence down there. There's just fewer animals. As you get deeper, there's, there's less food and fewer animals. Um, it, it's really a rough guess as to how many of them are bioluminescent. At, at least 50%, maybe more, um, below um, 3,000 feet. Um, but above 3,000 feet, between 200 and 3,000 feet, Uh, anywhere from 75 to 90% of the animals are bioluminescent.
0: Right, and that's the major thrust of of the book, and to some extent your your work is, we think of these as these freak oddities. We all know that there's certain, you know, duck-billed platypuses and stuff that are the outliers, as we think of them, of the natural order. You talk about bioluminescence in the ocean as a mundane fact of life for maybe even a majority of the animals that live in the sea. Is that about right?
1: oh that's very right in fact the most common vertebrate on this planet is a little fish called the bent tooth bristle mouth um that uh is bioluminescent and estimates are that there are quadrillions of fish in the ocean that produce light uh it's it's could the, the case could be made it may be the most common form of communication on the planet depends on how you define communication but I'm going, going for it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so your first deep dive, and again, I know this is a very long time ago. I know you've told this story a million times. Was in Santa Barbara, and I know that beach. And I guess those ugly oil wells were up even even then. I don't know if you know the French movie, The City of Lost Children. That's always what those oil wells oh. have. Have you ever seen the poster of it? It's it's uh, it's this dystopian sort of French fantasy oh, I think film. I've
1: seen that poster. Yeah.
0: Exactly. That's what that's what I think about when I'm at the beach in uh, in in Santa Barbara. Now I, I get chills. I've been at that beach at night. I get chills of thinking about going deep under uh, underwater there. What you saw the first time you were down there and able to uh, witness the bioluminescence it was better than, obviously, you were very hopeful of going down there. I know you waited years for your opportunity, but it was still way better than what you imagined to try. to, It's so hard. And you've really set up a task for yourself in writing this book. You're not primarily an author and trying to communicate the things that you've witnessed and seen and experienced and studied in, in the printed word. It's, it's challenging, but you've done a wonderful job with it. Fireflies is one natural comparison. You've also um, compared it to the 4th of July, what you see underwater.
1: Another way to think about it is if you've ever stood under the desert sky at night in, the, you know, when there's no surrounding light and you see the Milky Way and the, the galaxies and the just spangling of stars all across the sky. Now imagine those all around you and swirling around you all at the same time. That's what it was like. And I just couldn't get over not only the beauty, but also what it meant in terms of energetics because energy is everything in life and it takes a lot of energy to produce light and all of these light producers this had i felt like had to be one of the most important processes in the ocean and i couldn't understand why more people weren't studying it you could pick up a marine biology textbook in those days and find no mention of bioluminescence which you know after seeing that made no sense at all
0: (laughs) you make the case that bioluminescence might essentially be the most common hunting strategy, food gathering strategy maybe even on the planet. Is is that about right? Do you talk about the the nightly um commute between for the things that are down in the depths during the day that find it, that all of a sudden the tables turn and have this huge advantage being able to come up much closer to the surface, much closer to the surface than any of us imagine. These We always think of these things as happening down at some level that our, you know, our, our brains would cave in on themselves if we went down there to see them. But you say this this happens much closer to the surface once the sun goes down.
1: Yeah, so um, it's the most massive animal migration pattern on the planet. It happens every day in the oceans all around the world. And it's a a staggering, staggering volume of animals that come up to the surface to feed under cover of darkness. And then before sunrise, go back down to hide in the dark depths, which is why most of them are spending their lives below the edge of darkness. And yet they use visual communication and it's all based on bioluminescence.
0: Naturally, you've recorded videos down there. How much justice do you think The videos do to the actual experience?
1: Well, that's a very exciting thing is, is cameras have made a huge advance just recently. And so now the cameras are good enough that they can see what the dark adapted human eye sees. And that's really thrilling because so for so much of my life, you know, I had to depend on describing what I saw or using intensified black and white cameras um, that were kind of grainy and um, blurry and didn't do the, do the phenomenon any justice at all um, so it's it's exciting at this time to have this book come out at a time when people are going to start being able to see this more and more on documentaries um, and uh, actually you just see it on the internet you know people now are going out at night and taking pictures of bioluminescent waves um, lapping against the beach, and it's it's become quite the phenomenon. There's huge numbers of pictures.
0: You talk about in the book and you touched on a couple minutes ago the the language of light. What do you mean when you say the language of light?
1: Well, uh, linguists would argue that you there's a very specific definition. I'm using it pretty loosely, and I grant you that. Sure. but for example, um, there are these wonderful little creatures called sea fireflies. Um, that are about the size of sesame seeds. They're crustaceans, and they're all over the Caribbean, and they come out of um, the reefs or the seagrass meadows or even the sandy bottom just after sunset. About 15 minutes to a half an hour after sunset, you start seeing them come out. And the way animals make light is they mix two chemicals together called luciferin and luciferase, only actually there's a lot of different versions of those chemicals. But what the um, ostracod does, or the sea firefly, is it comes out and it squirts out the luciferin and the luciferase in a little blob of mucus. And then it swims up and does it again and again and again. And you create this string of what look like pearls. Um, And the spacing of the pearls is uh, species specific. So it's the male that does this. And the female knows if she goes to the head of that line, she'll be able to find a male of her own species to mate with. So it's, it's a very distinctive pattern that different species have. And that's, you know, a clear form of communication. It's also a pretty clever adaptation for how to find a mate in the dark without attracting attention to yourself because you're leaving your mating signal behind. So if a, a predator is attracted to the light, it's attracted to the wrong thing. It's the, the female knows where she has to go to find the male he's basically created an arrow for her pointing where to go. Um, So it's a a fascinating adaptation. And there's a lot of animals that have communication on that scale where they have flash patterns or uh, specialized light organs, you know, that clearly communicate information about, I am such, such and such a species. I am a male looking for a female of similar ilk.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Like underwater Tinder profiles.
1: Exactly right.
0: <laughs> that having been said, though, that's a, a specific function that you've been able to pin down the meaning of and the utility of. It, it seems to me there's quite a bit of bioluminescence that whose purpose you can't quite put your finger on.
1: Right. So one of the examples I give in the book is a gulper eel, which I actually was able to capture from a submersible one time. Um, and so I got to see its bioluminescence, I think, better than anybody had ever seen it before. Uh, And gulper eels are just these bizarre looking creatures that are, you know, super, super long, undulating body, huge mouth that's kind of like a pelican's mouth almost. Um, And it has a bioluminescent light organ on the end of its very, very long tail. And nobody can figure out what this is for. And maybe it's a lure. Maybe it does kind of contortions and a yoga-like pose to dangle it in front of its big mouth. Um, But it's also got this brilliant racing strike down the length of the whole body. And I got to see this in action when we captured this thing and we brought it up into the lab on the ship. And I was lifting it out of the container. And there was a whole crowd of people around me. We were standing under fluorescent lights in the lab. And suddenly that strip of light lit up so bright we all gasped. I mean, it must have been the brightest bioluminescence I've ever seen. I can't quantify it in any way, but it was just incredibly bright. So, I mean, I can speculate. Maybe that's meant to blind an attacking predator, but we don't know. know, A lot of us, it is just total guesswork. Until we can sit down there and observe how these animals are using their lights to communicate with each other, we'll never really have anything but guesswork.
0: You mentioned being on a ship with a team, and that reminds me of another anecdote from the book again because i think of what you do as being so cutting edge and futuristic i picture the the vessels that you're going out on being very clean and neat and orderly and yet at least in your early experiences the experience seemed more akin to something you would expect to see in a pirates of the caribbean movie it was very 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 rough and 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 rowdy and you had to really be up for it to be out there is it still like that to go out with a team nowadays and are you still up for that experience cuz you embraced the grime of of that of those trips clearly
1: yeah so i i've i've been doing the extremes for some time now so i i've been out on very small research vessels and in fact it was um one such that i was out on um, when we got the m- most recent footage of a giant squid um, and that was, a. Uh, I was in a cabin so small that it could easily be mistaken for a closet. And, um, the bunks were spaced so close together that when I turned on my side, my shoulder would bump the bunk above me. Um, so yeah, that was kind of rough. Um. And uh, But I also just got off uh, one of the most advanced oceanographic vessels in the world, which has two submersibles, a remote-operated ar- vehicle, its own helicopter, and a holodeck. So, um, it's, it's yeah, I've, I've had both extremes.
0: I'm going to confess my ignorance here. I've heard the phrase holodeck, but I'm thinking of something from like Marvel or Avengers. What is a holodeck?
1: It's just like Marvel or Avengers and, and, and Star Trek. Um, it's 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 new holographic uh, imaging capabilities.
0: We've really got those. Finally, they've been in movies for 80 years. We finally really got them.
1: We have them now.
0: Wow, that's exciting. Well, as we've already touched on, you you can't talk about the reality of um, oceanic life without talking about man-made pollution and man-made climate change. What changes have you personally witnessed in the sea over the course of your career alone? Just naked eye test.
1: Well, um, it, in the open ocean environment, I've seen evidence of overfishing in places like George's Bank off uh, in the Gulf of Maine, where you, you read stories of what the fishery used to be like with, you know, the fish populations so dense, they claimed you could walk across the fish to shore um, and uh, scoop them out of the water with a basket. And now when we dive there, we see nothing but jellyfish. And it's brilliant bioluminescence because so many jellyfish are beautifully luminescent. Um, but it's an example of what happens when you um fish, fish out a, a, a rich fishery like that. People think, okay, well, we'll just stop fishing, and the fish will come back. And that's not what happens. The hole gets filled in with something else. In this case, jellyfish, and the predators that used to eat the jellyfish are gone, and the jellyfish are eating the the any fish larvae or fish eggs that come along. And so there's no chance for recovery. You've pushed it over a tipping point into another very stable state that could last for a very long time. And so these are the kinds of things that we're doing to our life support systems. They're very um, amazing feedback loops that have maintained stability over you know, millions of years. And and we've, we're pushing all of those switches Uh, in ways we just don't even understand the consequences of, we don't have a proper user's manual for our planet, let alone a repair manual. And it's the only rock in the universe that we know of right now that can sustain life. So it's pretty foolish.
0: And I mean, I know the answer to this question without asking it. You say we don't have a user's manual, but to what extent do... State, local, federal authorities even consult with people like yourselves before they decide how much fishing can happen in X or Y body of water. I'm guessing not a whole bunch.
1: Well, the George's Bank um, example is a is a good case in point because um, the scientists were were providing information that this was reaching a t- tipping point, but the the Fisheries Council was um, receiving heavy heavy. Um, influence from the fishers themselves. And as a consequence, they let it go too far. And this has happened in fisheries around the world again and again and again. And, and yet there are these wonderful stories of um, fisheries that have been um, maintained and restored because people acted in time. So Cabo Pulmo in the Sea of Cortez, um, local fishermen there banded together and on, on their own accord decided that they were going to stop fishing um, because they could see what was happening. And as a consequence, it's now become one of the be- most productive marine reserves um, anywhere and it's become a tourism destination um, because the scuba diving is just spectacular and it's far more productive for the locals than um, fishing, fishing out their fishery.
0: It's nice when it works out that way. Obviously, you can't count on the uh, the Adam Smith invisible hand always taking care of those sorts of, of things. I, I'm, I'm curious, dumb question, again, based on the nature of your work and your career, do you eat seafood?
1: I, I used to, and I don't anymore at all. Um, and uh, I mean, you know, occasionally if I know where the seafood has come from, right. but part of my more recent work is we've been looking at toxins in, in food webs. And um, I've been pretty alarmed at some of the toxins we've been finding in, in some seafood. And so it's as much for my own health as for the planet's health that I've, I've um, cut way back on, on seafood. I used to eat mahi-mahi and I still occasionally will do that because uh, if they're line caught, um, it's a fish that grows very fast and the fishery isn't too damaging. You know, there's, there's, there are some fish, if you do your research that um, are probably okay um, I eat lobster every now and then, um, but it's really, really rare now. I'm I'm, I'm I'm I try to be more vegetable based. i'm i'm I confess I am still a carnivore, um, but i my my primary um, meat source is chicken. I,
0: I one time heard an environmentalist asked, uh, if they said if there's one change everyone could make in their life that would have the single greatest effect positive effect on, you know, the climate and the world ecosystem and her answer was simply don't eat shrimp. And I think that had a lot to do with not so much that shrimp are bad for you, but the, the trawling
1: the bottom trawling from for the shrimp industry is just horrendous, but not all shrimp are captured that way. Um, but then the problem is now there's a lot of shrimp aquac- aquaculture and they're wiping out mangrove forests to create these aquaculture farms. Um, so, you know, it's, it's another kind of destruction. Um, so yeah, not eating shrimp, uh, but, uh, um, not eating any bottom fish because that's just probably the most devastating thing I've ever seen is, is you, you see these just magical undersea gardens with, um, huge deep sea corals that are bioluminescent and, you know, seven to nine feet tall, 12 feet across. They took thousands of years to grow to that size. And for one haul of shrimp, they're just turned to rubble. And they won't sustain, that patch of the bottom won't sustain life again for hundreds of years.
0: It's just so hard for those of us who haven't been down there to wrap our head around it. It, it, The things that I... Hear about the sorts of destructive things that happen willy-nilly in our ocean. It's kind of amazing to me that we do still have a functional ecosystem on on planet Earth. It just goes just goes to show, I guess, how big the ocean is and how resilient Earth is. But you know, we have to consider worst case scenarios, and I know you do consider them to some extent in the book. You know, I know you're not a a, a climate scientist, but. Talking about, uh, you know, a set of dominoes that would fall where we would have the functional collapse of the ocean as an ecosystem that could thereby trigger a collapse of life as we know it on Earth. In your mind, where do you put the odds for something like that happening if we continue on something like our our current trajectory over, say, the next 25 years, 50 years? I don't know. You can't really say 100 years from now. But w- where do you think we are on that?
1: I think we're all the reports are alarming, um, we're we're much further along than a lot of scientists thought we would be at this point. Um, and, uh, you know, there's really scary tipping points, like the permafrost bomb, yeah. where, you know, the, the frozen carbon that's in, on the deep sea floor and in Siberia and other places is being unfrozen by the changing temperature and releasing huge amounts of, of carbon dioxide into the air, which will be around for thousands of years. And so it's a tipping point that, that it, you know, there's, there's no easy solution for coming back from. Um, and we're changing the, the temperature and the, the uh, patterns of the ocean's conveyor belt, these great rivers in the sea, like the Gulf Stream, that carry heat around the planet. And that's a lot of the reason that we're seeing these uh, firestorms and droughts and all of these things that are gonna become so much worse. Um, so it's, it, there's, there's no question that we're having just a, a really terrifying impact on what has maintained us for a very long time. One reason we've been able to be um, so profligate in our use of our resources is because of the size of the ocean. We're talking about 300 million cubic miles that's the volume of the ocean. And yet we've managed to change its chemistry. We've lowered its pH to the point where it's making it hard for coral reefs to form their skeletons. And uh, you know, th- these are really, really alarming things. But I, I think what happens when you try to tell people this is it, it just becomes so overwhelming that they just wanna stick their fingers in their ears and go la 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 la. I I can't do anything about it. I just don't want to hear it. And that was part of my motivation for writing this book and focusing on exploration and the explorer in all of us that we should be tapping into. It's the strongest part of the human spirit and we need it now more than ever.
0: Is there anything concrete, but beyond belief in the enduring power of the human spirit? Is there anything concrete happening that gives you hope that we can, I mean, I mean, a, either change the way that we're going about our business, or B, that there is some miracle carbon sucking device on the horizon that will allow us to continue to be like a bunch of, uh, you know, kids having a weekend in Las Vegas?
1: Well, I, it's it's difficult for me for to imagine that. But there have been a lot of breakthroughs um, that, I mean, I, I'm astonished at, at the speed with which the vaccine was produced for, for COVID. And, and its percentage effectiveness is just staggering. It's a huge advancement in, in medical technology to have accomplished that. The fact that there's people that, that refuse to take it is an indication of how bad a job we're doing of teaching science. But I do find hope in, in a lot of the young people that I encounter um, that have a much, much greater awareness than I ever had at their age of our planetary ecosystems and their part in them.
0: Yeah, it does seem like it's... It, it's not so much a matter of knowing the facts it's i guess sort of internalizing them because i you mentioned the name rachel carson in the book and I, I i read silent spring for some crazy reason when i was in like sixth grade i didn't understand a word of what i was what i was reading but it's not as if we haven't had the warnings it's not as if any um it's almost i don't know if you were ever a cigarette smoker right if, if you if you go through that in your life it's not as if you don't know it's just at a certain point you start to internalize the thing that you've always known and start to to act on it because you'd be uh, you'd really have to be trying pretty hard to not know that those things were bad for you in in the first place i'm um, unrelated to the subject but it's in your book so i wanted to ask you about it you when you were very very young had a a near-death experience but you have for yourself come up with an explanation that's potentially and it's just speculation obviously but a more mundane as opposed to potentially transcendent explanation for what near death experiences might be as someone who's never had one and is hoping to never have one. What, <laughs> what do you speculate your and other people's uh, near death experience was actually all about?
1: Well, I think there's, there are very interesting hypotheses out there. Um, and I, I make the point in the book that, uh, as a scientist, I'm, I've learned to be comfortable with doubt. Um, and so I, I have actually an open mind on the subject. Um, it, I grant you, it felt spiritual. It felt like something more than just a dream. Um, but I can come up with uh, a lot of mechanistic explanations for that. Um, and you know it's one of the great things about our life and our world that we have these powerful mysteries um, if If we knew it all, what would be the point of waking up in the morning? <laughs> the yeah, mysteries are, are just fantastic for motivating people to explore and better understand the world around them.
0: I don't want to pry into your personal spiritual beliefs, but I was thinking about that and going through your book. I remember hearing at one point a, a, a surgeon, I think, did perform their first hand surgery. And I don't know if this is a famous thing or if it's just some weird thing I read in an article one time, but just seeing the inner workings of a human hand, which is relatively simple compared to lots of other things out there, personally came to the conclusion I can't come to any other conclusion that there is some higher power, intelligent design, whatever you want to call it, because it is just too hard for me to imagine that chance and evolution could have arrived at something as wonderful as the inner workings of simply the human hand. Given all the things that you um, have witnessed, how does that inform your your sense of wonder and your sense of spirituality, say, as a person?
1: Well, I think that that surgeon just hadn't been given a very good understanding of evolution and how it
0: works. <laughs> I knew you were going to say that. Uh,
1: I mean, um, you know, if there is a, a creator, uh, I would think that she would be pretty upset at people rejecting this marvelous marvelous machine called evolution that made creation possible. Um, so, uh, y- you we each have to come up with our own spiritual and mechanistic understanding of how the world around us works.
0: Um, finally, in a TED Talk you did a, several years ago now, you encouraged everyone to add a trip on a submersible to their personal bucket list. Another final dumb question. Is that a thing a guy like me could actually do if I wanted to?
1: I think you're going to be able to, yes. it's uh, So the, the cost of submersibles has gone down. Um, the material science has advanced enormously, um, and um, I do think that there could develop a pretty strong um, deep sea tourism industry, which would help protect the ocean because you would have people going down and seeing these deep sea gardens, and people only protect what they love, yeah. and they can't love it unless they've seen it and and know it exists. Um, so I, you know, I mean, obviously there's. Potential for damage as well. Anytime people enter, but we've been damaging the ocean just unbelievably without ever exploring it. To have it exploited so tremendously without any understanding of what's there um, is outrageous. And so it, it's really important, I think, that we get people into the ocean and exploring and doing what humans do the best. We're we're great explorers, and if we can if we can tap into that instinct. I think that there, there are great, great discoveries to be made, maybe related to you know, how we can mitigate a lot of what's happening to us.
0: Well, a great place to start that exploration of this great big world that's essentially underneath all of our noses is to, is to read your book, which is, uh, which is finally available. And congratulations again on bringing that to print. It is called Below the Edge of Darkness, a memoir of exploring light and life in the deep sea, available now as they used to say, wherever finer books are sold. Uh, thank you so much for your time and for your insight and for your for sharing your experience, Dr. Edie Witter.
1: Thank you, Mike.